agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome back to The Politics Guys, Ken. Well, thanks, Trey. It's always a lot of fun when we get together and take over. I feel like we take over the show a little bit. Uh, Yeah, let's do it. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, on Twitter over the past couple of weeks, we, we had some uh, shout outs saying that we were the best hosts uh, for the politics oh. guys. And, and they were asking for some updates on some of the books and things because uh, we had been talking about presidential power. And so I gave out some uh, book recommendations. And so I just wanted to say kind of thank you to all of the Trey and Ken fans out there. <laughs> All three of you, you know. <laughs> uh, I can, you can lord, I can lord that over Mike. I see him at work. So. Yeah, you should. Uh, and that's and that's on Twitter. That's on Twitter, so it's official. That is a presidential documenting uh, medium now. And so, <laughs> um, but uh, so Ken, what I where I wanted to start was, and not where I thought we'd actually be starting this week. Uh, was with Biden and his sexual assault allegations because today, uh, Friday, uh, Biden has now come out and had some, had a response um, to Tara Reid. Uh, Tara Reid, for listeners, uh, might know that originally in a podcast interview, she made an allegation that uh, Joe Biden sexually assaulted her uh, in 1993. And since then, a number of outlets, including the Washington Post and Business Insider uh, and the New York Times, have begun to kind of investigate and uh, vet those. Uh, and so far, most recently this week, um, Business in- Insider actually interviewed a number of Reed's former neighbors, uh, and there appears to be collaborating, collaborating evidence. Uh, what happened today, though, is, is that Biden has now made, uh, um, gone himself forward. Uh, and in this case, actually come on the morning Joe just this morning to di- to discuss Tara Reid and what he kind of gets pressed on in the uh, on, in the show, uh, Ken, is, well, what the way you're handling this right now appears to be different from how you've suggested that others such as Kavanaugh uh, should do it. And so I don't really want to spend the show trying to decide who's right, who's wrong. Uh, you know, I think that's not really our, our point. Uh, but I'd like here to talk a little bit about kind of the process of this. And is, is Biden in a, 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 I mean, I think he's definitely in a difficult position uh, because I, I'm not sure that he can ask for the same kind of standard that he has in the past. Uh, again, especially in the light of uh, Kavanaugh and his, and his comments on the record for that. But I think also more broadly, this leads to questions about, I'm not sure if either media or the political process itself has really determined what the kind of rightful uh, process ought to be on sexual assault allegations, especially from ones that are occurring from a significant period ago. Uh, And so, Ken, jump in there wherever you would like. Yeah, well, I guess it, this is a um, electoral process that um, Biden's participating in, uh, which is a little different than uh, Kavanaugh, who you mentioned. So that was a, a conf- confirmation process. So in a, in a confirmation hearing, um, there is more of a formal process for evidence to come out to investigate claims that arise. Um, in an election, there's not a, a formal process like that. So it's really largely fought in the court of public opinion um, in terms of what voters um, think and what they'll accept. Um, I think it's a little bit early right now for me to take any position uh, one way or the other about um, whether I think that um, the, the allegations are true. But I certainly agree with I took to what I took to be one of your um, implications, which is that it's damaging to Biden politically, no matter what. He's he's already been damaged politically by it, um, and how he handles it can probably only continue to damage him politically. Um, and I would even go a step farther than that and say it's going to make a lot of difficulties for whoever his vice presidential nominee is, um, because he's already said that's going to be a woman. I'm sure that's true. And in the nature of these allegations, that's going to mean that one of the number one things 
that that vice presidential nominee is really going to be called upon to do during the campaign is to defend Biden on these um, allegations. And I I think that's going to be very uncomfortable um, also. So I, I think there's definitely some political issue problems here. Well, and, you know, one of the things I think you're right on the political problem, but I mean, just on a substantive problem, though, I mean, uh, Biden says during the Kavanaugh um, hearings, quote, for a woman to come forward in the glaring lights, the focus nationally, you've got to start off with the presumption that at least the essence of what she is talking about is real. Whether or not she forgets the facts, whether or not uh, it has been made worse or better over time, uh, end quote. Uh, and so then today he comes out and in the face of that quote, even uh, says, well, you, 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 I don't. He doesn't want to say he doesn't believe her, but he, he because he doesn't want to address it directly. But he clearly is walking those statements back. Uh, and so, I mean, I agree with you in the in the sense that you know ele- an election is a is a different uh, vetting process than a confirmation. But what do you think about in terms of the process here? I mean, is that a double standard from Biden? You know, I, I did listen to that interview this morning, um, and I'm not sure I would um, agree with the characterization that he walked back his statements about process. I I heard him say that he still thinks that, and that he thinks that the that that the fact that these allegations came forward against him means that there should be um, an investigation of the claims. I, I don't think he called for um, no investigation, and I. I did hear him say um, that he he wanted the National Archives to release all relevant um, personnel documents that they have, which would include HR records and things like that. So he he certainly didn't try to um, call for any kind of cover up. I know there was a little back and forth he had um, about his 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 personal papers, which he's given in boxes to the University of Delaware and the archivists haven't even started opening those boxes yet. And he he seemed a little bit more reticent to um, uh, um, allow some some uh, people to start looking for these kind of documents in there. But he but he said that any complaints that had actually been made through any kind of HR office or in, in any kind of personnel matter would be in the personnel records that are in the National Archives. And he he said he believed that those should all be opened up. So I don't think he was calling for a cover up. I think he was certainly asserting innocence. Um, and he asserted that many times. Um, but I but I think he was um, still calling for an investigation. Um, so I, I don't think that's completely inconsistent with his prior statements. Well, but I mean, but what he says earlier is, is that you have to presume in his words, you have to presume uh, that the woman is correct uh, in, in the basics and the be- basic of the nature before you have any even kind of investigation. I mean, that was the context of his answer. And, and so now I don't disagree. I don't disagree with you on the front of uh, I think he is open to having a, an investigation. He wants to have the open. And I think part of the the uniqueness about the archives is is that you know standard. I mean, it should be said standard practice when politicians deposit their papers, um, especially uh, vice presidents or presidents uh, or senatorial candidates for that as uh, senators for that matter. There are usually uh, there's a delay. In other words, it's x. The agreement is after x, it's only after x number of years, usually around the realm of two. Um, before those papers can be made public, even though they're housed there and can be researched in advance, they can't come out of there. Um, uh, so that's not unique. I mean, it should be said that's not unique to Biden's arrangement. But what about I mean? So again, though, I mean, it does seem so. On the here, the quote is: "Look, you've got to believe the woman." In this case, he's saying, "No, you need to believe." I'm saying they're false, but but I don't think that's inconsistent, though. I think he's saying you got to. believe believe the woman enough to actually start an investigation and not just to say that 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 can't be true. Um, And here, I I think I I think the statements are more reconcilable than you're allowing. He's not saying that you've got to believe guilt. He's saying you've got to believe that it's 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 worthy to um, the claim. The fact that the claim is made is enough reason that there should be an investigation. And, And I think that he is standing by that. I don't think he's walking it back. But in none of his previous answers about Kavanaugh, did he ever suggest that there ought to be further investigations? I mean, he said such things as, quote, uh, she gave cr- uh, courageous, credible and powerful testimony. Uh, she should be given the benefit of the doubt. And it takes enormous courage to come forward. I don't I don't I don't disagree with him. Um, you have to start off with the presumption that the, the essence of what she is uh, talking about is real. Um, I, I just yeah, this is the presumption, right? I think he's saying the same in this case. I actually think that if you if you read between the lines of what he said this morning, it's the same as that. That in fact we should start off with the presumption 
that this complainant's complaints are real. I don't think he ever denied it. Um, I think what he did say is that that presumption um, he believes should be rebutted and will be rebutted through further investigation. But but I think that really a presumption is all about whether you launch an investigation or not. Presumption is not the same as a final determination of guilt. So what do you say to those on the left who are, and this one I don't have as much of a bone, but I think for a lot of people on the left, they see this as having been be the, the primary problem with a guy like Biden, uh, which is, look, you know, we didn't get a Sanders. We didn't get somebody who's sympathetic to the Me Too uh, movement. And this is what we get. We, we get Biden. And now we're going to have to deal with this kind of baggage. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean it's it's a problem. You know, it's there's trade-offs there. I mean, Biden one of the main liabilities that he always brought even before these particular allegations came up um is that he's old and he's been around a long time and he was around at times when a lot of attitudes were very different than now. And so there's a lot of baggage um from his past and uh you know, the, this is a you know, this is one that's not only because it's from the past cuz the the mores even of the 1990s um this would have been a you know, a violation of the mores of the time. I'm not saying this would have been consistent with the mores Nobody of the time. Nobody says, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but, but I'm just saying generally, um, uh, you know, a lot of votes that he had to take in the 80s and 90s on positions that were mainstream among the Democrats then, you know, the Democrats have changed their positions on a number of things. And it, it's just an inherent problem with um, having someone that's been around from a really earlier era um, that things that, even though I'm sure this would have been what, what he's accused of would have seemed wrong at any era, but it wouldn't have necessarily seemed like something that would um, uh, make somebody um, ineligible to be president. Um, you know, a lot of past presidents um, did engage in types of conduct like, uh, like like what Biden's accused of, in fact, and uh, um, and a lot of consensual um, uh, extramarital relations as well, probably among a majority of presidents, in fact. Um, and and that, that kind of thing wasn't seen always as disqualifying. Um, so I think it, it is it is inherently problematic when you've got the candidate from the 1980s or the candidate from the 1990s running for president in, in 2020. And I see partly that this is a manifestation of that. Um, but yet, you know, politically, you know, the 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 uh, the countervailing concern, which ended up capturing the majority of Democratic primary voters was that um, he's the he's the one who's closest to the center, who has the most relationships across the aisle and who's best going to be able to peel back Democratic voters who had turned and voted for Trump in 2016. So it wasn't really about his appeal to the progressive wing of the party that got him the nomination. It was his 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 appeal to the what we could consider to be the the, the right the the right wing of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. I, now, kind of putting it in a in a bigger context, and I think a lot of uh, commentary is going to continue to focus on Kavanaugh, but I will also like to kind of look back to Franken. I'm wondering if what we're seeing also seeing with Biden is not in part the Democratic Party in some ways grappling with how to actually handle this. I mean, in, in the case of Franken, uh, it w- there was kind of a swift amount of, look, there's been an allegation, we have a photo, this is done, be out, he quickly resigns. Uh, and then thereafter, there clearly seems to be a little bit of, uh, I'll say remorse on his part in interviews thereafter. And I also think on the part of a number of the senators in his own party who so quickly called for his uh, ouster. Uh, and so do you think part of the part of the searching that's going on with Biden is attempting to find some kind of middle ground between kind of the Kavanaugh and the Franken locations? Again, it's a process. Yeah, I think so. And in fact, I think, um, you know, I'll say as I'm, I'm one Democrat who um, was 100 percent behind Franken all the time and still is. And I, I never called for his resignation. I was very opposed to him resigning. Um, I have stuff out there on social media from the day that people started calling from his first resignation, really not being for that, because I do think in Franken's case, the complainants fell primarily. There were a lot of complainants, but I think they primarily fell into two categories. The majority of them, including the the woman with the photograph, were in fact right wing operatives. Um, And then not all of them were, you know, some of them were Democratic women. um, But if you look at the actual complaints raised by the Democratic women, as opposed to the right wing operatives, um, if you really read what they were saying, it didn't really amount to anything all that terrible. I think that was much more about the 
the cultural mores of the time and the fact that he was a comedian and all that. So I, I felt that he was he was taken down in a hit job. Now I'm not at all prepared to say the same thing about Biden. I don't I don't have a reason to think that Tara Reid is a, a right wing operative and the things that she has said certainly do sound serious. So I, I'm not putting this in that camp. But I think a lot of Democrats ultimately came to see the Franken episode the way I'm describing it. And so they don't want a repeat of that. And so they're a little bit leery. Um, and that's not I'm not saying this is a repeat of that, but I, I think that's sort of the issue there. Do you think that that kind of nuanced position is going to be a long term feasible position in the Democratic Party? If it's an, it, it seems to me that that is a fracture that has yet to be figured out. Uh, and again, I, I say this as an outsider looking in, of course, um, but, I, but I see that as being a rupture in the Democratic Party that I think if there was a different person in the White House right now would maybe even be wider. Yeah, I mean, what you say about who's in the White House right now is part of the politics of this, because I, I would think that um, and I would actually hope I will say that um, even Democrats who become convinced that Biden is, in fact, guilty of what he uh, is accused of, um, if he stays the nominee, I don't see that that's a reason not to vote for him against Trump. You know, it's 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 a terrible thing and it's a reason not to vote for somebody, but it's not a reason not to vote for somebody when the opponent is many times worse. Um, and, and so it, it is going to be a, a forced well, see, choice between those two. That's a, and I'm, I'm glad you got to that, because this this brings me to an interesting question that I have pondered myself. And that is, is I mean, I, and I hear what you're saying there. And I, I think that you have accurately summed up uh, many of the Democratic Party's conundrum. In other words, whatever happens with this, I'm going to have to vote for Biden against Trump. But does that mean that all race, I mean, does that justify all wrongs, though, for candidates? And I. Well, I, yeah, I don't think all because I, I think it, it I think here the problem is that they're both guilty of that particular kind of misconduct. But could that disqualify anybody ways. from having I mean, in other words, if I'm a voter, uh, yeah. you know, is it is it? I mean, to put it in a different term, a different moral term. So I say, well, this guy's killed you know a million people, and this guy's only killed a hundred thousand people. So I'm going to go vote for the guy who killed a hundred thousand people because yeah. that's that's better as opposed to saying, well, I'm I'm just not going to vote for either of those uh, candidates whatsoever. No, right. I get that. Yeah, I think um, to me maybe the difference would be if Biden did do this um, 27 years ago, exactly what he's accused of. Um, I don't. I don't think that reflects who he is today. Whereas I think that kind of conduct still reflects who Trump is today. And and so to me that's an important difference. Now, if I thought that Biden did this 27 years ago and and he would do it again tomorrow, um, then I would be more thinking, yeah, then maybe I don't know about voting for either of them. But I, I don't think that about uh, Biden. And, um, and, and, I, and I also think, um, you know, maybe it would be a reason not to vote for Biden if he was running against uh, Romney or, or McCain or somebody like that. But he is running against Trump, and it's, it's going to be a binary choice here. You know, and I think back, and I'll never forget, I was in graduate school uh, at the time, and I, I heard a lot of the arguments against George W. Bush as kind of being this ultimate bad. He was kind of the ultimate uh, left bad guy in some ways. I, I think in many ways he's gotten off the hook in the wake of uh, the you know Trump being uh, president. And I'll never forget because there was a book on presidential power, uh, and I cannot remember which one it was uh, now that I had I had out the library because I was working on my dissertation at the time, and you know you have hundreds of books <laughs> where you're doing dissertative work. And uh, one, I don't know uh, who had written in it. I'm, I'm assuming a, a professor at my institution. And in the margin of the book, in, in several places, uh, had written things, uh, and clearly professor, that about how, well, he, didn't, uh, he or she didn't think that George W. was going to give up. You know, there, there could be, in other words, he might just hold the military and everything. And I just thought, well, that, that is outlandish. So I guess I think one of the things is when I hear that is that for those on the right, uh, they say, well, yeah, you say that you'd vote for a Romney or you'd vote. But, you know, there were similarly um, vehement uh, positions against George W., uh, a guy who, for all of his numerous flaws, clearly didn't have uh, the kinds of uh, moral shortcomings, I would say, with the exception of potentially torture. That's a big one for me. But that's obviously in a different, non-personalized context. 
Yo, know, I, I pointedly didn't include George W. Bush when I said I would vote for Romney or McCain. I was I picked properly yeah. then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, even if I thought that Biden was guilty of what he's been accused of and he was running against George W. Bush and George W. Bush was never guilty of anything like that, even if you posit all that, I'd probably still vote for Biden because I think you do have to um, think about things like um, Bush, you know, he, he lied us into a war in Iraq. He started torture chambers in Guantanamo. You know, ultimately, these kind of things, I think, are a lot worse than anything that Biden has been accused of or anything that he would do as president. So um, I, I think that the, it's, a, it's a subtle moral judgment, but because this is an electoral process, um, you know, voters are going to have to choose in a binary choice. And if you compare it to the Kavanaugh hearings again, if Kavanaugh hadn't have made it through, then all that means is that in due course, um, Trump would have got to pick a different conservative who didn't have those problems who would have gone through. So it wouldn't have um, actually reversed um, you know, who gets to run this whole country, which is what's at issue in a, uh, um, a presidential election. So you see this, you see that as being the stakes lower? Yeah, definitely lower. I mean, I think um, for, there's no reason to take someone onto the Supreme Court who did, if, if you believe the allegations against Kavanaugh, there's absolutely no reason anybody who did that should be on the Supreme Court. Um, because if he's not, then someone else will get that spot and someone else will function more or less similar to him in terms of their role on the court. So even people who, even, even judicial conservatives who want a conservative on the court who, who otherwise liked Kavanaugh, you know, I, I think they should be able to give up on Kavanaugh and, and pick somebody else that they like. But in the, in the, in the presidential race, you know, if the Democrats give up on Biden, um, they don't get to pick someone else that they like. They hand the presidency to Trump. So this, the stakes are extremely much higher. I think it's a, it's not, it's not a situation where if, if someone I mean, fails, they could theoretically pick, vote for. Like, we're later in the show going to talk about a couple of the yeah. third party candidates who are running. I mean, you could yeah, vote for the, one. Neither of them is going to get elected. And voting for anyone other than Biden, if a Democrat votes for anyone other than Biden, I mean, unless Biden drops out before the election, but if Biden's the nominee in the election, and every single vote that's not for Biden is a vote for Trump, and it's going to put Trump in office, and I, I would hope Democrats would understand that. Okay. Well, then I think we'll have to uh, turn away from that topic and hit another one that I know that we continue to come back to, but there is so much going on uh, with COVID this week uh, from the the memeable Mike Pence's maskless face in uh, the hospital uh, to protesters, some of which were carrying firearms, uh, taking their demonstrations to the mission in the uh, Capitol, to President Trump's uh, tweet in su uh, su uh, support of the protesters. Uh, there's a lot of things happening with uh, COVID. But now, as we get into some of those political uh, items, I do want to point out something here, Ken, and, and that is is that I see more and more often the amount of uh, misinformation that keeps coming through the pike uh, about COVID. And I want to make clear, you know, uh, I, myself, uh, myself with Michael, when we did the uh, episode on the coronavirus, we were trying to talk about, you know, there comes, there, there are decision making, a decision making process that has to happen. But I'm, I, I'm afraid that one of the things that I'm seeing come out here is, is that there just isn't agreement on some of the basic facts. And so I just want to let, let everybody know, like right now, as of today, uh, this is May 1st, according to the CDC, uh, we've had 1,062,446 uh, cases of COVID uh, and 62,406 deaths. And this puts it at the very top end of the estimates for what the entire last year's flu season was. And so I know there's been a lot of uh, conversation about trying to compare these two things. And while I'm not against comparing deaths and statistical probabilities, I think you can do it. Uh, there's, I think, a lot of myth, misinformation. One, that the CDC is over-reporting those numbers, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that. Uh, and two, uh, that when you're comparing those deaths, again, you have to compare apples to apples, which is we're talking about a year <laughs> uh, versus a couple of months. So again, we can have conversations about this, um, but I think we, it's not a bad place to start by starting with protesters. Uh, and protesters around the country, but very specifically this week, uh, taking place uh, in, in Michigan. What do you think about the protests in general, Ken? Are you, I'm obviously, I've already kind of given my point of view out here. I'm a little worried about 
Not so much the decision on what to happen, but the inf- misinformation on which it's being based. Yeah, I mean, I, I so if, if we link that to the protests, I guess, um, I think that that's the, I think the, the protests are, um, they're organized, right? They're, they're not organic. They're, they're not um, groups of people sort of rising up to express their views. Um, most of these people are being paid. Most of these people are being paid by uh, right-wing organizations largely associated with the DeVos family in Michigan. That's where the money's coming from. Um, and it seems to me that it's it's about, um, uh, it, it, it largely is a kind of propaganda um, uh, channel to um, gain more attention for the spread of the kind of misinformation that you're talking about, um, and also somewhat to undermine democracy. So I, I, I know in Michigan, they, it was legal. It's legal in Michigan for people to bear arms inside the the state capitol, um, and there wasn't any any violence or law breaking. But it's still, to me, a very um, uh, appalling kind of uh, um, uh, uh, image just to see an armed militia marching on the state house, um, both to you know, I guess ostensibly just to intimidate the legislators, but also I think to make it seem like there's actually a, some groundswell of people who who have some kind of just grievances about um, the coronavirus thing being a, a hoax. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really bothered by a lot of it. Um, and I, I guess I'd throw that back to you. I mean, what, what did you think about it? <laughs> I, you know, I think in this case, you know, the, the, what you're talking about there uh, is always the difference. Was it grassroots or is it astroturf? Uh, and, and in all honesty, I don't think that while those get thrown around, I think they primarily get thrown around uh, as used against the other side. In other words, when we look at the other sides coming out, it's astroturfing. And when it's your side coming out, it's, uh, you know, some kind of grassroots effort. Um, but the the best that I can study on this is that generally it's a combination of those two things. You have interest groups, organizations backed by uh, funding who make these kinds of protests possible. Uh, they oftentimes may start smaller, uh, but you need funding to make them happen in the long term. So whether or not you have interest groups becoming involved in it, that's just, I think, kind of par for the course. I think what's kind of um, what's more concerning for me is that I think that we need to find some consistency. I I think that protesting is a great thing to do, whether you're, you know, whether that's part of an interest group or not. Uh, but what I worry is, is what I see is that some forms of protesting get equated. So, for example, uh, I you know, you're making a, a you cannot deny that you're making a strong statement when you're doing it legally, but you're still bringing firearms to a protest. I mean, that is upping the ante, right? There's just no question that that's what you're doing. Uh, but I would, I think I'd be hard pressed to find many on the uh, right who who are consistent on that one, who have supported them, but have not supported. I don't know, taking a kneel in the NFL, for example. Right. Um, but on the let, left, let me add. By the way, just while you're on that, I, I completely agree with what you said about protesting. Gen- I, I think anyone should be out there exercising their First Amendment rights, protesting anything, whether or not they're being paid by somebody, whether or not that that's grassroots. I'm all for that. But I think the the guns is 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 really doing something very different. It's really about trying to um, suppress and delegitimize other views and and trying to suppress and delegitimize legitimate government. Well, but I mean, Michigan allows for that to happen. So, I mean, Michigan could have passed a law that says you're not going to be able to bring weapons. So they're operating inside of the of the legal framework. And again, I agree in the sense that you're you're upping the ante. Uh, but clearly, when um, the legislature allowed for it to happen, they knew that that was then therefore a possibility. I find it a little bizarre that the legislature you have legislatures complaining about protesters with weapons, and I keep thinking, well. You're the one who made it legal for that to happen. Did you make that law happen and think it was never going to occur? Uh, you know, I that that's the part that baffles me a little bit. I mean, I can be a, you can be against it, but how can you be the person who passed it into existence and then complaining about the the exercise of that right that you've passed into existence? I wouldn't even call it a right in this case, but that that ability. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I mean, they they should not allow people to bring armed armed militias into the state capital, and they should change the law to prevent that. Yeah, but I mean, I I will say, and this is one, you know, I think that a lot of I think the one positive side to this though is it does give credence 
uh, to those of us who are more sympathetic uh, to having people armed is that having weapons does not necessarily lead to additional violence. I mean, here's a great example. Uh, you have a lot of people who are, I mean, those are I mean, some of the weapons that those guys had. Those are not cheap weapons, especially the, uh, the handguns. Uh, I know that when people look at it, obviously the more seemingly intimidating ones are those big uh, assault style uh, rifles, but those are really cheap, easy to put together. Uh, what's expensive is is all of those handguns those guys were carrying around um, and probably actually far more deadly in the long run. Um, but what do you think about that, Ken? I mean, I know a lot on the right have to say is, look, you can have protests with weapons and that doesn't. What do you think about that? I'll throw that one back to you. Well, yeah, but in this in this case, it's because um, and these guys were masked a lot of them, too. This this is because they completely succeeded at intimidating um, any kind of possible counter speech. So, yeah, if, if, if it's, it's certainly possible just through terrorizing a population that, you know, the overwhelming show of force to um, uh, maintain uh, order. Um, but that's uh, that's completely at the expense of everybody else's rights. Right. Like everybody, there's no violence because everybody's just terrified of all these um, this armed militia there. So that, that's not I don't think that's very consistent with civil society. That seems totalitarian to me. Well, totalitarianism is when you have a state imposing a specific kind of total view on a person. So what you're suggesting is, is that the that that having that is an intimidation to not allow any other side to counter protest. But of course, you know, last week at the first part of the protest for this, I thought you had some pretty brave uh, nurses standing up and blocking the protest itself. They were counter protesters. Some women. Some and, women and, did and, and, well, and just to be clear, one of the nurses was a man. Continue, though. OK, yeah. But I think a lot of men would not have. Done, you know, I think women have maybe a little bit more um, room to, you know, that it would be more of a taboo um, for, for these militia men to have to commit violence against them. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think the whole purpose of showing up armed and masked and in large groups is to intim- intimidate everybody else. And uh, so that that, you know, even if you're saying there were a few brave people who weren't intimidated, um, I don't know that that goes, you know, I don't know that that's at all consistent with what we think of as, 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 as a civil society or a free society when one group's basically just trying to say we to show, to show force and to show power and to, um, you know, really just try to silence everybody else. So that that's how that's how I perceive that. And, uh, you know, I guess maybe not everybody would perceive it that way. But it's, um, you know, I, I, I just can't see what the purpose of those guns was if it wasn't to, to, to intimidate others. I think it's probably I don't disagree in the sense that it's an attempt to demonstrate uh, counterforce. But I would suggest that it was it was primarily directed as a message towards government. Um, but I think that in general is what you're always doing with a protest. You're just you're upping that um, those stakes and that ante to a, a whole new level. Um, and well, I, without, I, I, the guns, without the guns, you're showing how many people believe in a certain idea. And with the guns, you're actually physically threatening the legislators. Like if you don't do what we say, we're going to kill you. So it's it has a very different effect. I guess there I might we would have this kind of a substantive disagreement. I don't take the having of a firearm to be a I want to kill you. Um, and I, and I, I don't think that's the message that I shouldn't say all, but I don't think that is the message that most individuals who own weapons are attempting to convey. Uh, so while I would agree that it's an attempt to show strength, you know, Having, holding, or uh, using a weapon is not an automatic threat on the lives of others. We're not talking about people who are choosing to hold and have weapons at home. We're talking oh, about I'm an talking armed about, I'm in public. militia. Yeah, in public. They're going out in an armed masked militia and marching in force on a, uh, um, a, 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 a civil government. Um, uh, what else could the guns be for? What could they be for other than to, to, to threaten and intimidate the legislators? Well, I don't disagree that they're attempting to make a message with it, but what you were saying was is that by the very act of having a weapon on you that you were suggesting that what I'm going to do is kill you with it. Uh, but I, I, that, that's where I was taking a disagreement specifically. So what is the gun saying then? It's saying that the ultimate power resides with us, not with you. 
I mean, and that that's what a that's what those on the Second Amendment are going to suggest. I mean, the purpose of the Second Amendment uh, for anybody on the right is going to be to say uh, it is a reminder uh, that the, the ultimate power lies with people, uh, not with uh, governments. And how does the gun remind? How does the gun remind people of that? Because it reminds them that they have that ability to ultimately uh, be in control. In other words, to use the gun to kill the legislators. Oh, so you're, well, I mean, I guess ultimately, yeah, I mean, you could be trying to make that point of view, but I don't think that's where you're starting by just having a weapon. I mean, I mean what you're just having a weapon, it's marching in an armed masked militia on the legislature. Well, the same thing, of course, would ultimately be true of just marching in general. I mean, the people marching is a suggestion that it's you who are in control, not yeah. government, ultimately speaking. Now, of course, your right to protest if it was ultimately denied, I would, you know, you are making a point that you would not want those people in office and or out or, I mean, I get supposedly if we're going to, you know, kind of take it to the ultimate point you're saying here to the point of, uh, you know, killing a tyrant. Um, but there are lots of steps in between those. So, I mean, it would no be no, I mean, your suggestion that the, the gun makes that leap is no more valid than the protester making that leap. I mean, your right to protest, be there, shout and scream uh, is ultimately, again, a sign to say, look, the power resides with me. Yeah, but without the gun, what you're saying is there's a lot of people who um, will vote you out of office if you don't start doing what the people want. And that's a very different kind of threat than, than you know, saying, well, we've got a relatively small number of people, but we got big guns. And so you better do what we say. Um, that's a very anti-democratic kind of threat. But. Well, again, though, I mean, even in political science, you have mass people who uh, mobilize against authoritarian governments all the time as an attempt. Well, I should say all the time uh, they had to attempt to intimidate and force and to uh, break down without weapons. Uh, so, again, I mean, the very act of protesting is a sign that, yes, you're right. I think stage one is, is in a democratic system. You want to vote people out. Um, but I don't think the exercise of a particular right takes you all the way to, I want to kill King George. <laughs> but I think that's the message they're already trying to send, you know, that, that it's like, this is a, this is a beginning um, that leads to that kind of end, right? You, you start off by marching um, as a militia um, against the government um, to signal, you know, if the government doesn't change course, we're going to use these guns against the government, but that it's, it's all part of a continuum. Well, yeah, but I, I don't dis necessarily disagree, but I would say that marching as a mass protest is the same thing. Well, except that it's the, the difference there being whether the, the marching as a, a mass protest is about using the democratic means of change, which are legitimate in our system, whereas the gun is about using a threat of violence, which isn't about it's not legitimate in our system. Well, of course, but but the. I mean, your ultimate question, though, is, is that, well, here, here's an interesting question. Why don't we just get to this then, Ken? So, Ken, let me ask you as a hypothetical then, so kind of moving away from COVID specifically, uh, or this particular protester, do you think then that there would ever be a point when the people could rightfully say, look, government has gone so far that I, I, I can't uphold the government. I can't, I can't go along with what this is happening. Yeah, I mean, of course, that's what happened um, with our own founding fathers. They they wrote a Declaration of Independence. They they found that they didn't want to be um, ruled by the English monarchy anymore. Um, it was time to establish a new country. Um, so I, I don't know that they were wrong to do that. Although I'm not as sure as everybody else is that they were right to do that. I think it's a complicated question. But I but I think um, that um, that they they did end up having to use force to some extent because when they declared independence, they were invaded um, uh, by the the English crown, which tried to reassert its authority. So then force had to be used in a defensive posture. Um, I, I'm not going to say that's wrong, but I think it's very far from the situation we have in America today because we actually have a functioning democracy. We, in fact, we have a functioning federal republic. There's no reason at all not to believe that the state governments more or less reflect um, the people of the state and that the United States government more or less reflects the, the, the views of the people of the United States. And, you know, I've complained on this show a lot about gerrymandering and about certain unrepresented aspects of our democracy, but still, by and large, I don't think it's enough to say that the, the whole system is so 
severed from um, being a, a, a legitimate form of government, that it would be time to overthrow it. And I think to the extent that these armed gunmen are saying that, maybe that's the message they're trying to give is that they, they think that the, the government is so unrepresentative of them that they'd like to overthrow it uh, by force, then really I think that is uh, an attack against everybody else who is represented by that uh, democratic form of government. Well, I, just to be clear on my point, and then we can, we can move forward. Uh, I didn't think this is the, the, the track we were going to take with COVID, to be honest, but this is great. Uh, is that, you know, I don't support, you know, just uh, as, as I'd mentioned before, I think that there's a lot of uh, misinformation about COVID that is driving a lot of people uh, think that there's kind of conspiratorial activity that's taking place. Uh, so I don't want anybody who's listening to this show to think that I support the view that we need to have a complete uh, normalization. Uh, and further, you know, to differentiate me from, um, you know, some, uh, some other uh, colleagues of mine, I also want to point out that, you know, one of the reasons for having states is that they aren't bound by the same kinds of rules that the federal government are, right? The Constitution applies to the federal government, and it creates a relationship between states and the federal government. Uh, but it doesn't, di- it doesn't dictate what states can and can't do. The original intention is for states to be able to take what may seem like more uh, personalized or, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here, Ken, is um, more extensive regulation, right? Uh, and I don't, I don't think that would have been... Um, seen askance by any framer. I think where we have a disagreement on this, Ken, and we don't uh, often maybe see this far apart, is I think for many, I don't, I don't think the jump that you're making is the one that those, I think there's going to be a different response to those who are around and or see weapons in a, in a, in a regular sense throughout the day, and, and those who for which it is not a regular occurrence are going to see those as being different messages. Now, I don't think that we're here. I don't think we're disagreeing in the kind of the ultimate outcome. Uh, I think where we disagree is in the shade of of what that means, you know, how far down the road that that's looking at and meaning. And I certainly don't think anything's happening that would warrant, uh, you know, it's time to shoot anybody. Um, But I I think where we're having a disagreement is is what having those as part of your um, demonstration says. But I will say for those on the right, that it, 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 I, you know, if you're going to support this, which I think we ought, because that's the law uh, in Michigan, but you have to also support the other protests. And, that, and that's why I kept coming back with you, Ken, to talking about other kinds of forms of protest. You, you, can't, you, can't, you can't pick, right? I mean, you, you can't say, I love free speech, but it can only be these kinds of free speech. Or in this case, it can't be the right to assemble and protest but only if you're assembling and protesting a way that I am. Uh, there's nothing more or less American about what uh, Kilpatrick did in the NFL than what about these guys were doing uh, in Michigan. And, and that's the part that gives me uh, trouble and pause. But I don't think on that point we disagree. No, I, I think, you know, if it's just a question of what their viewpoint is about when, when these states should be reopened, I'm 100 percent in support of their right to protest however they want uh, that involves actually exercising freedom of speech. But I don't, it's really just the part about um, using guns to intimidate people and, and to intimidate the leg- legislature that I, that I have a problem with. And I think we also agree, uh, you know, if you're the legislature uh, in Michigan, well, you know, it, it might be time to say, look, you can't have these when you're protesting on the Capitol. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I, I guess I also maybe don't have as much sympathy for that since they're the ones who passed the law in their state. I mean, they could have easily avoided this by banning that. Uh, and and I, I, you know, I don't think there's uh, any court would have struck that down. Um, but we might get to that more in the bonus show. So as we move forward, uh, I think one of the last things we wanted to talk about, Ken, was uh, Amash and Jesse Ventura. Uh, to, well, third party candidates, because earlier we were talking about, well, who could you cast your vote for if you weren't going to vote for Biden in a different kind of contest? Uh, This week, former Republican um, Justin Amash um, has declared that he is running for the Libertarian uh, Party. And so he is looking for those of you who don't know, yes, the Libertarian Party does, in fact, have a nomination process. Uh, It is a whole lot more fun to the extent that I have ever been involved in all of them. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, and he's moving for that. And Jesse Ventura is moving for a Green Party 
uh, nomination, which will actually be harder. Uh, I think there are already um, a couple other candidates who are kind of further into the process. It's a little more free wielding in the Libertarian uh, Party. You know, I have some sympathy for uh, Amash. He basically is a is a is a not Trumper. He doesn't like Trump, uh, and as a result, he has left the party and he's moved to the Libertarians. And I, and I get that. He and I would disagree on some policy issues, but I I understand his desire uh to to call out Trump and to run against him but he's really a man without a home he was kind of praised uh earlier when he voted uh in the Trump impeachment trial but now of course uh those same individuals are worried that he's going to damage not Trump but the never trumpers who we were mentioning a minute ago uh who might turn to a third party and uh, in the wake of a of a Biden issue or just because they were supporting Bernie Sanders or for whatever reason and therefore take away votes uh, from people who wouldn't have voted for Trump. So what do you think about third-party candidates in general, Ken? What do you think about these two specific third-party candidates? And if you were Biden or Trump, would you worry at all about any of this? I mean, again, usually we're talking about a variation of one to three percentage points, if you're lucky. Yeah, I mean, if I were Biden or Trump, I'd I'd worry a lot about it. Um, And actually, I think it's unpredictable enough in this case. I think they both need to worry a a lot about it because this election, if it's if it's anything like the 2016 election, um, it's going to be decided in a in about four or five states that are going to be very close states, um, and by very very close, you know, probably within one to two percent. You know, Trump and Biden will be within one to two percent of each other. So, so um, third party candidates can play a big spoiler role. Um, to some extent, that did happen in 2016 because Jill Stein, although she got a very small number of votes, the number she got in Wisconsin and in Michigan, in both those two states, was more than the difference between um, uh, uh, Trump and uh, um, uh, Hillary Clinton. So um, now you don't, we don't know for sure that all those votes came from Hillary Clinton. Some of them might've come from Trump or some of them might've been available to, to neither of them, but, um, but she did, she did, you know, end up having a a number of votes that was more than the margin of difference. So I I think third party candidates can play a a dispositive spoiler role and that that is something that the major candidates have to be worried about. Generally, in the in the presidential campaigns, um, I'm against it. I'm not I'm not necessarily against third parties at lower levels, but I think when we're talking about the presidential level, um, it's a certainty that one of the two major party candidates are going to win the race. And and therefore, since I don't I don't think it's even conceivable that the third party candidate could be doing anything other. Than playing a spoiler role, it's it's not something I really approve of that much. And when you say approve of, you just mean as a voter siding with that. Yeah, I'm against it. I I think it's not a good thing to do. That's what I mean. They can do it. I'm not saying that they don't have a right. Um, And I actually think there's some reasons to have third parties at lower levels. You know, in in, at the municipal level um, or even at the statewide level, um, I think it, it could be possible to build a third party that could speak for a constituency better than either of the two major parties does. But but if that's ever going to happen, it's going to have to happen from the bottom up. There's absolutely no way to start that at the top with the presidential race. Now, you know, you mentioned that if you were either candidate, you'd be equally worried. And I'm not sure about that um, in, in part because and, and maybe this is in part due to my own experience. I, I'm a not Trumper uh, made that very clear on the show. Uh, now, and, and I mean, maybe to, 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 to speak to, well, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but if I'm president Trump and I'm running for reelection, I don't I mean the people who are going to vote for the never Trumper guy who, uh, voted against, uh, Trump for the, for the, in the impeachment, uh, trial, excuse me, in the, uh, in the impeachment process proceedings, um, I don't see that as being the category that was ever going to be in the Trump's targeted campaign. Uh, Jesse Ventura, I mean, if he was running in a different party, maybe, but I, it, Green Party, how, ma- how many Republicans are going to defect to the Green Party? Um, it seems like both of those would be potentially pulling, ironically, from Biden, which is not always the case. Oftentimes, when you're talking about libertarians, you're, you are talking about people who are going to be peeled off from the left. But I'm not sure I see it this time. I mean, the right to me seems very much you have you have the core Republican supporters who are going to be behind Trump no matter what. Um, and, you know, we've talked kind of talked about this on this show. 
I, I don't really see that being the swing. Maybe, wh- 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 who are you identifying? I'm, I'm curious about who, wh- if I was Trump, who I'd be worried about and why. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, if I, if I was Trump, I'd be more worried about Jesse Ventura than Justin Amash. And uh, the thing about Jesse Ventura is he, um, he is a proven vote getter. He got elected governor of Minnesota um, on a third party. Um, so he's, he's good at, he's been on television a lot. He's got a lot of name recognition. And I do think that, um, it seems to me that some of some core parts of his constituency are the sort of Trump Democrats, you know, the, the kind of people who typically, typically white working class people who generally voted democratic in the past. Mm-hmm. Some of them are even registered Democrats and they crossed over and voted for, uh, Trump against Hillary Clinton. Um, uh, particularly in states like Michigan and Wisconsin, um, Pennsylvania, you know, I think that that demographic um, is available to Jesse Ventura, and I think uh, Trump would have to worry about that. I agree with you that uh, running on the Green Party is not going to be a selling point for that demographic. But, <laughs> yeah. but I think it's, uh, but I think it's something that um, uh, they could look past. You know, I mean, I when when uh, when when Jesse Ventura ran in Minnesota, I think he ran on Ross Perot's Reform Party. Yes, and yes, I don't think that was. I don't think that was. I don't think that was a selling point for him either. I think it was just that. People who liked him voted for him, and there were a lot of people who liked him. You know, now I I think that the Reform Party might have been easier <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. than the uh-huh. Green Party, uh, but you're right. I mean, it wasn't doing him any favors. But but you know, in today's environment, even just saying green <laughs> has you know, it, it, now full disclosure. This is not my position, but it, but that is in fact. I mean, if, whatever he hears is watermelon, right? You know that one, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Right, green on the outside, red on the inside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's just pinko commies, right? I don't think, right. I mean, it, it's it's it, that would be much more of a problem for um, an unknown candidate than for Jesse Ventura. I think that uh, I just think he runs as Jesse the body, right? He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't run as the watermelon. Like yeah. people already know him, so it's. I, I think that that ultimately um, isn't gonna isn't gonna be. I mean, he probably will get the votes of the people who already voted for the Green Party if he runs on the Green Party. That's very few votes, but uh, but I, I think he I think he can open up uh, audiences for himself. I kind of do agree with you about Amash that Amash is more of a threat to Biden than to Trump because he would appeal to um, never Trump Republicans who who don't want to vote for Trump, um, and they they might like him better than they like Biden. Although I think some of them like Biden okay, so I'm not. Not sure about that, but I, I uh, and some of them might be never Trump enough that they wouldn't want to vote third party. Um, and of course, all these things, it, re- it really is only a factor in like four or five states. It hardly matters how people vote in any in any other state because there's not going to be that many states that are that close. That's absolutely true. And, you know, and this is something that we've talked about a number of times over the year, Ken, and that is it's it's not that third parties are somehow being hated upon. It's simply that the electoral rules that we use uh, favor a two-party system, right? It's Duvier's law. Uh, you, you have one man who takes the whole win. You have one woman who takes the whole win. And so as a result, that crowds out third parties. I just mentioned that again, because anytime we talk about <laughs> third parties yeah. on this show, we are always inevitably get some of those questions. So Ken, what I think as we kind of run out of time here, I'd like to finish on is uh, a new segment for the show that we've been doing kind of consistently. Uh, and that is recommendations. So things we've been watching, listening to, reading, or otherwise engaging in uh, that we'd like to recommend to uh, our listeners. And so, Ken, I'll start with you. Yeah. So I've I've been uh, home a lot, you know, as a lot of our listeners probably have. <laughs> I've been uh, uh, been been listening to a lot of music, reading a lot of books and magazines, and uh, um, I. Uh, um, I like to read the the New York Review of Books a lot, and and I, I know um, I don't know how familiar our, our readers are with that that magazine, but it comes out once or twice a month, and it does it's a publication that mainly reviews books, but a lot of the books it reviews are books about politics, so there's a lot of political writing in it. Um, and there's a particular writer who writes in it a lot named Finton O'Toole, who uh, is a writer for the Irish Times, and he writes a lot in the New York Review of Books about. Brexit and about um, English and Irish politics, but he's also started writing some now about American politics, and he's had a couple of columns in there recently about um, ab- about the present political situation here in the United States in the COVID era, and I've really been getting a kick out of that. So I'd, I'd recommend the New York Review of Books generally as a magazine worth reading, and Fintan O'Toole in particular as a writer who's been writing a lot in there lately that I'd recommend. Oh, that's cool. Um... And 
I haven't, you know, I haven't seen any of that. That's, that's interesting. So for me, I'm actually going to go, you know, I've done video games, you've done music in the past. Uh, and so I thought that I might do something a little bit uh, different uh, this time. And that is so just like with you, Ken. So my family, we don't have a lot of streaming services, right? Um, we, you know, we just have, we've just had kind of had one throughout the time, Netflix, uh, and we watch those kinds of things and to kind of laugh and do other kind of stuff. Uh, but recently we got a trial for Amazon Prime because, well, it's a pandemic and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, now I have three kids and so I'm not going to, um, in any kind of big way, recommend that you watch this with all your kids, but I don't get a lot of chance to watch television, but during this time, the kids go to bed, and I have been watching a show of something of my choice, um, and have you watched on, do you have Amazon Prime, Ken? Yeah, I do, yeah. Okay, so have you watched uh, uh, Jack Ryan? No, I haven't, I don't know it. Okay, so that is actually, it's based on a character, did you, did you read any of the, uh, um, the books by Tom Clancy way back in the day. I think I read one of them. Yeah, okay. just one. Well, I'm yeah. just going to let it out. I was a Tom, when I was growing up, I was a Tom Clancy fan. He was already kind of antiquated by then. And since then, he's written a lot. Well, he just puts his name on things and then gets money and other people writes it. Uh, but the <laughs> books he actually wrote were always very interesting. And the, the central character in all of them is Jack Ryan. And in this, uh, in this program, it is following, it's a retelling of it in the modern era. So it's kind of Jack Ryan rebooted. Um, and it's played by the, uh, oh my goodness, Jim from the office. Why am I blanking on his real name? Um, I don't know either. Anyway, the character of Jim in the office. And I didn't think that he could be an action hero, but here he is. And what I'd like to suggest is I went in a little bit. I was only watching it in some place. I thought, well, I'm just going to have kind of a, you know, sometimes you just want something a little bit mindless. And I just thought, well, this is going to be kind of just an action fest and I won't think and the kids won't be around and and whatever. That'd be great. And instead, what I found was actually a really nuanced view in the first season of politics and CIA work, thoughts about religion and terrorism. uh, And again, I was kind of shocked by the depth that it had. You know, it was uh, the uh, one of the head CIA guys is in fact himself Muslim, and it was it's just a really unique telling of thinking about these things in a modern era in a in a cool way. The second season gets a little bit crazier, but that's just the way those kind of shows go. But I want to I'm going to suggest uh, Jack Ryan on Amazon Prime as being something that I. I got into just to be an adrenaline rush and instead found myself thoughtfully provoked. I will, I will watch it myself then. Yeah. I'm curious if you, you feel the same way. Uh, and it, it, eventually you'll get over it if you've been watching, you've been a fan of The Office. But anyway, well, Ken, it's been wonderful doing the show with you. I'm glad you were here today. And I want to remind our listeners, we're going to be doing a bonus show in just moments uh, that will be coming out on Wednesday. So, Ken, I'll see you just again in a minute. Uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in and hearing us here on the Politics Guys, all of the hosts, myself included. I just really love working on the show. Uh, I'm getting done with the school year, and there's all these other things going on, and yet this is kind of my space to be creative and to dig into some things with Ken that I wouldn't normally get to do with students or other places. And so what makes that possible, makes, makes this possible, is awesome listeners like you. And some of the ways that you can help this show by being more than just being a listener is, is you can subscribe to the Politics Guys on the podcast app of your choice. Right now, we've got a lot of time on your hands. I know I'm listening to a lot of podcasts when I run or when you're exercising. Uh, so it doesn't always have to be about binge watching Netflix. Yeah, subscribing to the show is incredible. And right now, more than ever, uh, word of mouth advertising is huge. So if you've loved this episode or others, if you'd share them on your social media feeds, that would be amazing, and I would greatly uh, support it. We also I actually just need your support. And so one of the great things about being a supporter is you get access to a bunch of supporters-only content, and that includes our full-length supporters-only Wednesday show, what I was just talking about. As soon as this show gets done, Ken and I are going to record a Wednesday show just for supporters. And if you want to become a supporter, all you have to do is check us out, or some of the other benefits, on the Politics Guys our Patreon page, and that is patreon.com slash politics, guys. If you're also interested in support, you can head to our 
website, which is thepoliticsguys.com slash support. So join me and Ken again on Wednesday by heading to patreon.com slash politicsguys or by heading to politicsguys.com slash support. If you've got a question, a comment, a correction, or just some random thought you'd like to share with the Politics Guys, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We also strive for civil and rational debate on our emergent Reddit at Bipartisan Politics. Our Reddit again is Bipartisan Politics. We're also on Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new bonus supporter show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.